You're listening to Music Tectonics. Welcome back to Music Tectonics, where we go beneath the surface of music and tech. I'm your host, Tristan Neuer Jaeger, Chief Strategy Officer at Rock, Paper, Scissors, the PR firm that specializes in music innovation and music technology. Let's go back to the 2023 Music Tectonics Conference and listen in on some of our favorite people talking about the state of creativity in music tech. You can find more conference takeaways in some of our recent episodes. Listen to catch what you missed or refresh your memory. At Music Tectonics and Rock, Paper, Scissors, we are fascinated by the explosion of music creator tools that are democratizing music making and fueling a powerful new creator economy. In this episode, you'll hear from some of the people driving those shifts. Matt Henniger at Moises, Daniel Rowland at Lander, Danny DeChacho at Splice, and the session was moderated by Danny Deal of BandLab. That's a lot of Dannys. You're in for a treat with the state of creativity in music tech. Now over to Danny Deal. Thank you. Yeah, welcome to the Danny panel and Matt. <laughs> Uh, also, thank you all for being here so early. I know 10 a.m. is a lot to ask of people in the music industry, so I'm happy to see you all here. Um, so to start, I would just love for everyone to introduce themselves, say who you are, what you do, and uh, let's see, one line about uh, what you think about the current state of creativity in music tech. No pressure. Well, that's a that's an opening. Um, I'm I'm Matt Henninger. Um, I'm VP of Business Development at Moises, um, and uh, state of creativity. I I think we're witnessing a rather unprecedented democratization of technology that has been not tucked away, but sort of limited to highly skilled professionals and audio engineers. And I'm it's really been exciting to watch that sort of filter down and watch more casual musicians and uh, embrace it. So I'm, I'm really excited to see, see where this goes, truthfully. Yeah, cool. So I'm Daniel Rowland. I'm an audio engineer and producer, uh, head of strategy and partnerships at Lander, and college professor. So I kind of dip into a few different things. And well, yeah, you pretty much stole my answer on the uh, yes! state of creativity. But we'll talk a lot of more about this today, about AI and some of the opportunities that are coming up and challenges around that. But I think it's like in my professional lifetime, it's the most exciting time ever for creativity in, in music and just the arts in general. So super excited. Hi, I'm Danny DeChacho. I'm the VP of content at Splice. Um, so that means the, the people that make the sounds, the folks that are booking the studios, etc. Um, I'm also a producer. Um, one line about creativity in tech, I guess I've had a little time to think about it. So I would just say that it's wide open. So in this conversation, I want us to get into deep dives. I would like for us to get granular. I would like for us to not feel afraid to get into the nooks and crannies. And to kick things off, with instant connections to global audiences, how do you feel the feedback loop is influencing artists' creative processes? <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, that was interesting like 
you know, there is the the immediacy of, you know, when you put something out, you, you know, we get feedback faster than you ever could before. And you see a lot of artists, and this has been going on for a long time, even workshopping ideas, because what is music is content, right? And people are trying to monetize content and eyeballs and ears and all that kind of good stuff. So even showing more of the creative process, I think has been interesting to watch how artists have engaged with that. And, and, and even iterated sometimes with fan feedback and stuff. And and, uh, and that extends to, again, stuff we'll talk about on the creator tool side of things where fans can actually participate with an artist's IP and they can share in revenue and things like that, which I think is a fascinating thing that's, uh, yeah, exists now and is certainly going to exist more in the future. It's an interesting question because I think as an artist, there's there's sort of two sides to it. Sometimes when you're making something, you want to keep it closed, right? You want to like keep it close to you, nurture it. It's an early idea. Feedback can really influence what you do next. So it's not like ready to go out. And with all of these tools that are available, you can, I think early stage creators can keep it closer to the vest for longer, which is nice. But then the minute they're ready to like get that feedback, they can go wide with it instantly, change something, tweak it. So it's like, it's more in the hands of the person who's making the thing than ever. Yeah, I, I think I see it like pre like creation of a, of a new sound recording or something new. Like I talked to a lot of artists that want, like you mentioned, like really want to protect that process. Like because influence can be positive and vastly negative, right? And that can influence the art. So I see that as like one component of the feedback loop. But then I see the feedback loop, once you've created it, now what you can do. When you talk about sharing the IP or like exposing stems or doing these things and engaging with your fans and maybe getting remixes back or something that you can have that feedback loop sort of post-creation. I see more folks in that space right now, but I also see needing to protect what you let in as an artist because you don't want to be influenced too much, right? Let's talk a little bit more about post-creation. That's a really interesting idea. How are tools creating greater opportunities for post-creation now that we, no, we truly no longer live in a one master world and every piece of content can be exploded into a hundred different things? Um, yeah, no, happy to. So I think it goes to that um, sort of the, the DAW in your pocket idea, right? Is now that as these technologies can proliferate into social media and to other services, and you're getting to see unintended consequences of technology, right? That's what you were talking about earlier. Like, you have an idea what it could do or how it'd be helpful, but once you start to see how users are, do are interacting, it can completely pivot the way. I see that feedback as being probably the most interesting right now. It's like, we don't even know, and, and artists are probably learning, and I'm, I say it all the time, I'm just in awe of independent artists and what they have to manage and understand and learn. Like, this is just another thing, it's another, fee it's a feedback loop, I'm like, wow, if I create music this way, it can be now consumed in these different ways, should this lend me, you know, take me down a different path. What was the question you were talking about post-creation? Like, it, it, yeah. it's kind of interesting too, because I think another thing we were going to talk about is like, is when is something done? Mm -hmm. Is there a post creation? Like, is yeah. it is something just forever remixed? You know, I, for me, like, I have to like decide. Okay, this is done. I'm going to commit to this being done, but I don't really want it to be. Yeah. You know. Well, and it's this kind of speaks to a broader issue. It's it's our movement away from traditional static content, right? And that's whether you're a musician who who writes and records a song, and that's the song, and you give it to your fans and all of that, or it's a 
it's a lander or a splice loop or, or something like that or something on BandLab where it's it's no longer the static piece of content. It can be malleable, right, through AI and various other things. So the idea that now you can put something out in the world, and there's even some companies here doing things like that. I think EverFM and Bronze AI, new formats where a song is never done. It just evolves over time based upon, uh, you know, input from the user or like Endel, the time of day or their heart rate or whatever, right? This is where we're entering into a very interesting time. Now, I, I, for functional music, that makes sense. I often, often ask myself, do fans really want that kind of stuff? Like how, how, how practical, practical is some of that? But I find it fascinating, mm -hmm. you know. Can I poke you a little bit more? Because you called it an issue. Why do you call it an issue? Which the you, mailability of music? Um, the idea of something never being finished. Oh, I, I am a huge, I mean, I've, I've probably said this on another panel, but 12 years ago, we put out an, an iOS app that was an album that never played the same way twice, right? So every time you put it on, it would be, it was pop music. It wasn't like functional music or, you know, yoga stuff. It was like really composed music, but, you know, combining stems and things, it was always different because we thought that was a really cool idea. And there's Easter eggs and a lot of stuff you can do with that. So I love the idea of, of something evolving uh, over time. So I don't think it's an issue at all. I think it's, it's more the if there's an issue it's it's is 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 a is fans is that something people will embrace at scale right or is it a novelty and i actually don't know i mean it makes sense in the context of gaming and a lot of other things but in like the traditional way that people engage with music yeah i don't know i wonder if we're making it like if this this proliferation's making it more difficult to be a songwriter and an artist right to know how easily it has to live on to your to danny's point like when is it done? I have to tell myself it's done. I've got to have a deadline. Right? And now if that doesn't exist, right? Like I, I find it like, how do you conceptualize your, where you need to be to create your art? You've curated yourself. You've created your space. You want to be done. You have to, that moment of release when it's complete. And now like, I wonder if that's being actually taken away a little bit. But at the same time, what's happening is people are putting out lots of little things mm -hmm. and kind of getting feedback at the same time. Yeah. And I wonder, that that's sort of your first question is how does that feedback loop influence your music making? And I don't know. I mean, it, it seems tough because I feel like for me, I'm a creative person who wants to hold on to things until I feel like it is mature. It's developed, like I, it, my voice is in it. Um, because I don't, I don't, sometimes you don't care what other people think, you know, you don't really want to know yeah. and that's okay too. Yeah. And you said something I was about to pull on for a second, which is it's with the, just taking this album, never played the same way twice thing, which was more of a, like an artistic experiment. We found that it was actually really freeing because if something could go out in the world and continue to evolve, you were more open to just putting stuff out, like little snippets of things, incomplete things, because they weren't, you know, you weren't planting a flag and saying that this is my final artistic expression and it was going to have a life beyond you. And that was actually artistically kind of interesting. Um, so we've talked a little bit about the absence of limits that exist right now, but what do you think are some of the creative limits that exist today that music tech is still trying to overcome? I would say access, different people, like different ages, different, um... <laughs> that was dramatic. <laughs> uh, I'll sing my answer. Um, uh, like, like ages, uh, price points, etc. you know, like these things are still very expensive for a lot of people. And so I think we're all trying to figure out like, how do you get this into more hands? Yeah, I think definitely that a hundred percent. 
Um, also, you know, we live in an inherently digital world now when it comes to creator tools, but everything is still based upon analog workflows effectively. Like we're still largely using, you know, linear timelines and things that are, yeah, it's just a recreation of stuff that we had in traditional recording studios. Even even a lot of mobile applications for creating music are based upon that. So I think it's kind of, I always think about it like when, you know, the metaverse is a big thing. Everyone loves the metaverse and then somebody builds a shopping mall or some experience that you have in your normal life. Well, what the f you could have built anything. Like, why are you doing that? And I think I like to see experimentation with UX and UI when it comes to creator tools because people who don't, understand the aesthetic of a, a recording studio or what a mixer is like that a lot of people don't understand that and that's a that's friction right that's a barrier to entry and i think getting some of that shit out of the way uh and, and just think making things more intuitive for people to create with is cool and there's lots of companies experimenting and doing fun stuff but seeing that kind of executed at scale i think it's going to be cool is there anyone that you can point to that you particularly like yeah so geez a, a lot of the stuff so i've been big in the mobile music space for a long time, right? Develop companies developing apps and things like that. I think that still has been the most interesting, the multi-touch environment where, where you know, uh, creator tools like Fugue Machine, there's a cool app called Musics, uh, Borderlands, things like that, that are just, again, you just touch and you, you, you play with it, right? And you can, you can create. And I think that's just quickly, it's, yeah, everyone's, you know, text to music prompt based creation is such a big thing right now, right? We're all hearing about that, but it's literally the worst way to create stuff, right? It's the laziest way to create stuff. The hardest part about designing stuff for, for people to make music with is the user interface and a blank page is not a user interface. Do you know what I mean? So like music is about experimenting and tweaking and not knowing what an LFO is, but turning the knob and getting something right. And I think we haven't, with a lot of the AI tools, we haven't put a a user interface on it that's going to make it be engaging at all. So it's another kind of barrier for, for adoption, regardless of what the price point or the technology can do. You have to make it something people can use. Well, and thank you for teeing me up to talk about AI, because what would a music tech panel be if we didn't talk about AI? Um, it is inescapable. It is prevalent for everyone's life in this room. As it becomes an even greater player in music creation and production, what ethical considerations should we be aware of? How do we strike a balance between human assistant, or sorry, machine assistance and human creativity? That's a big one. Um, mm -hmm. I think it respect. I think it all starts with respect for music, respect for musicians, and respect for rights holders. I think it starts there, and I think that. This is another iteration where the technology has sped up, has sped up the licensing. It's, it's, it's ahead, right? We're pushing the, the boundaries there. And I think what, I mean, we're, the conversation's evolving. How models are trained, where did it come from, what is its source, right? These are, these are very big conversations. But to take the time, to take the pause, to say, to understand the supply chain, to understand and to be thoughtful about how it can be additive, right? How can you sort of take, because, Music distribution, and it is so complicated, and it's by territory, and it's by rights type, and all these things. And it's like you could, if it's brought in too quickly, right, it can burn out and it can be very detrimental. But if it is paced and is thought about in an ethical way, and it's thought about how can I enable a songwriter, how can I enable an artist, and I think it just takes time, it takes thoughtfulness to, to put teams together that have enough experience working with the different entities in the space to say, we have, this is great, like there's a lot of technology, I know a lot of companies that are sitting on a lot of things that shouldn't come out yet, right? It's, you gotta sit and think about their ramifications and also think about their ramifications for each part of the ecosystem, from the songwriter to the distributor, because 
It can impact it in so many ways and it can impact revenue models and livelihoods. It's just got to, there are ways, but we have to be selective. I mean, I'm just, please go ahead. I mean, it, it's a really tough question to answer. We, I think about this a lot at Splice. Like, I don't want to quantify what percentage of time, but it's like a, a meaningful amount of my job to think about this. I think the, we do a lot of stuff to combat this. We, we think about like titles of sample packs. We think about like the way things might be appropriated or like what that line is between appropriation and appreciation. Um, we think about who's making the pack. Like, are we getting somebody from, you know, are we getting like a random producer who's making like K-pop who hasn't like helped build up that that movement, you know, in Seoul or something? Or are we like, who are we giving voice to? Who's getting paid from doing all of this? Um, and we think a lot about it. We don't always get it right, but it's like a conversation we're constantly having and developing a muscle around so that internally we are, we're prepped for that conversation. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's something that we're navigating currently on the lander side of things where we have, we get a lot of questions about this on the AI side of things where artists actually, shockingly to me actually, are more looking to how they can not just use AI power tools, but participate in data sets and training. And they were more knowledgeable a lot of, about a lot of the stuff than I would have imagined. And, you know, we're distributors, so we have lots of tracks, we have samples like, you know, a lot of our companies do and loops and things like that. And trying to find, and I don't think anyone has an answer for this yet, a way for artists to participate in, you know, get, a, you know, a monetary stream from this type of stuff without it just being something that feels like this, you know, overwhelming thing that's going to, you know, take their jobs away and all this kind of stuff. So it's like, uh, I've been on a lot of panels recently talking about this with major labels and all sorts of other people. No one really has a, you know, is it a compulsory license? Is it a, you know, how, how does that work? And some interesting companies have popped up to try to solve that. Psalms just released, A.AI just released something this past week where they, you know, you can go to them, they'll train, you know, take your data, train a model, and then provide attribution to the artists that were involved. And you're, I think you're going to start to see more of that. Um, but it's, boy, it's, it's still a tough nut to crack. I do think one thing we should all be doing if we're not already is making sure that our rooms and like decision-making groups are full of a lot of different voices mm -hmm. so that we can be checked on things. You know, there's a lot going into this and the implications are huge for, for fans, for creators. So it's really important to surround yourself with a lot of different opinions. Are there examples within your individual companies of choices that you've made around how AI is implemented in the creative process and what ethical consideration does that demonstrate and why did you make that choice? Yeah, so we um, at Moises were, have been working on a voice synthesis specifically for music production. So we um, were thinking about the application of that. and the nomenclature between like voice cloning and voice synthesis, which we found there's actually like a big disconnect between those two ideas. The idea that you can recreate someone's voice is not, well, that's cloning, that's not what we're speaking about. What we're speaking about is like uh, carrying over the timbre of someone's voice. Like uh, the, the best way I can describe it is like a digital switching amplifier, right? You can switch, you can be a PB, you can be a Fender, you can be these things, but you don't actually, you still actually have to play the instrument. The tone is there, right? But you actually have to give it the performance. So a, a consideration that we made is we made and released 11 voice models in our platform, fully licensed by that artist. And we're, it's a thesis we're testing out um, where we're gonna pass 100, it's a one-time fee for the model. 
and then 100% of the revenue from that model goes to the artist. So right now we're experimenting at different price points, $30, $50, but the idea is you purchase the model, you can use it, and we're seeing a lot of use in demo creation and songwriting, and, and very much not in the, in the final production, but in creation and pitching, is okay, if 100% of that $50 goes to the artist and you replicate that 1,000 times at $50,000, that's impactful money for a singer, that's a lot of streams. So it's an idea of saying, okay, let's, because of how tracking and all these other things that are evolving and are just like, how can we be additive selectively, have it done the right way, pass the revenue along, and then like, let's experiment, let's collect the data, let's see if we can be helpful. So that's like, that's, that's how we decided we were going to approach voice synthesis rather than opening the models, for example. Which I love because right now it's, you know, the wild, wild west with a lot of this stuff and you see a lot of companies not taking, not being that thoughtful of artists and their IP and just kind of throwing it out there and hoping they don't get sued and, you know, not caring right now as they try to gain notoriety for, for, for what they're working on. And I get that, but I much prefer, yeah, like bringing the artists in at the outset, obviously. The main thing we're doing is just making sure that the sounds are made by people. It's literally like people in studios, you know, around the world that are either making them or hiring other people to make them. So it, it becomes this like this catalog of, you know, thousands and thousands of artists that have, you know, artifacts of their hands on the strings, like, you know, things that maybe AI will evolve to be able to do. But at the end of the day, these were all people that were hired and put to work to make them. So earlier we talked a little bit about feedback loop, uh, fans having more of a participatory, participatory role in the process. Uh, as listeners become even more involved in the music creation process through tools and platforms, how do you see the role of audience evolving within the music ecosystem? I mean, it's kind of what we were talking about earlier. It's, it's you know, seeing people being more free with their IP, so audience. I mean, what, what, is, what does every label pretty much want, right? They want something to go viral on TikTok. They want, the fans have the power to, to make that happen, right? And giving them more, um, ownership and more ability to participate in this kind of bi-directional creation process is only going to facilitate that even more. So I think that's kind of, you know, where things are, where things are heading. And you've seen that in other forms of media. We're just a little late to the game as we typically are with music with that type of thing. I love it, but I'm also a little concerned about the commodification of creativity in general when everyone is a creator, which, which is great. But, you know, it also means that music just becomes, if I'm an influencer and I only have an audience and I don't know anything about music, I can use A and just, you know, it becomes another vertical in my brand as opposed to something that I'm really passionate about. And I do worry about all the noise that is going to proliferate from that. <laughs> I don't know if I do see the role of a fan changing that much. I mean, it might evolve a little bit, but like fans are going to fan, you know, it's like you're going to, you're going to love it or you're not. And then you're going to, you're going to idolize that artist or you're not. Um, I don't know that that's going to change. The only difference is that you might be able to like kind of collab with that artist one way or another, but that's another form of, yeah, that's true. I could definitely see that on like, you know, the definition of a super fan, right? Where you've got those people that will do anything with your content. You can't produce enough. You can't engage enough. I see that. I see that on this, like the super fan. I totally agree. I also see your point too. Like then there's noise, right? And like, I don't know where that line lands, but I do see more engagement, the potential for more engagement at the super fan level. But then I just see brands. I see noise. I see like, it might even be harder to poke through, right? Yeah. Like the artist that earlier to our feedback loop, someone who is like, 
are we making is it more, now more difficult to even poke through? I don't I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the thing I'm hoping to see, and maybe this has already happened and somebody knows, is when an artist gets on stage and performs a song that a fan generated with their voice model and that they share an ownership. You know, that kind of stuff, whether it's Grimes or whoever, right, is going to happen, right, where there's going to be this stuff that blows up that an artist maybe didn't even participate in, but Moises modeled their voice or something like that. And that, that's, I find that kind of stuff interesting, but f for the most part, it's just going to be fans kind of being fans and just engaging with content in different ways, not being a threat to the artist's livelihood. It's just another way for them to feel kind of a personal connection with the artist at a scale that the artist can't do themselves, but they can do through a lot of the things like Moises and other companies are doing. Yeah, I suppose what I think the difference is is that fan used to be more of a passive relationship. You would consume merchandise, albums that the artist would put out, whereas now it feels like it's a more lean-through experience. The expectation is to not sit back, but to actually lean in and be a part of the process as the music is even developing. Do you, do you think that's an expectation? Like, do you think that's the expectation I, of the fan? Or I, I, I'm I think curious. we're seeing it as a trend with Gen Z and even Gen Alpha. Yeah, there's an expectation that they be a part of the process. Mm -hmm. I ask because I'm too old and I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in a, another vein of opportunity how do you think that new music tech is enabling micro genres or even new genres to proliferate um, what are the different ways that tech is um, enabling new sounds to pop up around the world I see this on Splice a lot mm -hmm. right? you, yeah like it's people are We've got, you know, however many millions of samples, they're tagged individually. They are often tagged with a genre. But then when people are downloading them, they're not using them for that genre, right? It's like a, like, might be like a boom bap kick that's used in, I don't even know what, right? Like a, a tech house track or something. Um, so it's really enabling like a cross pollination of genre and sound, which is, um, you know, giving way to like things like ballet funk, like, you know, making like very distinct sort of collections of different genres. Yeah. And I think it's one of the upsides of, you know, it's the cliche, the democratization of creator tools, whatever, is that a lot of people who wouldn't typically be able to create now have access to that and they don't know the rules that they're breaking a lot of the time. And I think that's where new genres come from a lot of the time where niches are kind of pulled in this case, via social media, oftentimes into the spotlight where people are just doing whatever they want. And they don't, they don't come with a lot of the, uh, you know, the formulas and, and, and the tradition that somebody like myself might, right? And I think that's amazing. I see that lined up like really well with your earlier comment about linear processes, like that yeah. we can break those. It's like, as those are broken, like new genres are created because people are breaking the things and turning the knob that they don't know how. And like that, that to me is what's, what's exciting about it. Yeah, and it's also, you know, Again, being old like yourself, uh, you know, people now are you know, drinking through the, the, the fire hose of music that, that comes at people and the access they have is also kind of informing new genres, right? Where it's like, it's just people are listening to way more diverse genres of music than they could before. And with the proliferation of collaboration tools and things are able to work with people from diverse backgrounds and collaborate in, in different ways, whether it's on social media or in traditional, uh, you know, DAWs or whatever, browser-based DAWs or what have you. So I think that also is contributing to, to some of the... Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, you had a good point earlier about um, 
Now I'm forgetting what it was, but it was good. It was amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. (laughs) Um, I promise. He just said it was old. It's okay. As as the access thing, like as you talk about like maybe younger people having access to this stuff, I think there's a thing that happens when you are really early in your music making journey where you kind of like, you're like, I like it. Mm -hmm. So it's cool. And you're not really worried about what other people think, which is, man, I miss that. You know, like you just, you don't really care quite yet. So it's like, I don't care if this is like in that genre or that genre. This is sick. Yeah, I'm in a constant state of trying to get back into that headspace. Yeah. yeah I think a lot of us are. Yeah. 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 I want to really get into this idea of access. I know we've talked about democratization. Uh, the whole music industry has really leaned into this idea of democratization over the past seven, 10 years. But I think now we're actually at a tipping point where we are seeing the fruits of our labor and it's actually becoming a reality. What responsibility do you think music tech platforms have to actually make sure that these tools have greater access to people that are in underserved communities and what does that look like? A resp- I, uh, the term, resp- I, I think it's it's the goal. I, I mean, a responsibility, I, I, I'm not sure about that, but like, I think it's, as a musician, as someone like it, for the, you sort of go back to like that uh, getting back to like that moment where you don't care, right? That, or the beginner's eye, or like all of those things. Like when you got into it and you wanted to play the music that you loved, and you wanted to get it to as many people as possible. Like to witness the expansion and the democratization of people enjoying music. I, I mean, to me, that that's it. Like that's the point. I, I to watch. Um, you know, I, I an odd example was. Uh, we have an office in Jao Paso, Brazil, and it went down. And they were sell it. They were using the technology and listening to '90s grunge tracks, like and playing along with them like they had never heard them before, and celebrating. And I just found myself caught up in this experience, going like, "This wasn't available. This is a group of people that did not have this before." And then expanded on that and going, "Well, if you the more this expands, you talk about creating new music and new genres, like that to me is." That's why we're here. It, it, it's the point to me. Yeah, and I, I'd written an article in Billboard, I guess, earlier this year. This year, yeah, about this, which was needing to go out and meet new creators where they are, as opposed to kind of setting some barrier that they need to, or threshold that they need to ascertain before they can consider themselves creators. And that means a couple of things. It's the way you build technology, right? It's the way you, how you package, you know, Lander is an example of this where, you know, we've seen, uh, you know, there's a lot of frac- fragmentation in the music industry with creator tools, right? You can have a distributor that that's one subscription, you have samples provider, you have collaboration, you have plugins, you have whatever, right? Your DAW, you know, all that stuff. And for us to try to solve the problem for the question that you asked is to try to put that all under one umbrella and try to make it as inexpensive as possible with free tools in there as well. So people, no matter where they fall in their kind of creator journey, they're, they're met within the same platform, right? As opposed to, cause I think one of those daunting things for people is tr- just trying to figure out what to use, where to go and where to start, man. Yeah. So trying to get that, that cold start. I spent the like beginnings of my career in nonprofits, like teaching beat making, taught beat making in a prison for a little while. Like, so I think that listening to people in all those spaces, like here is what we need. Here's the thing we're trying to achieve and taking those spaces super seriously mm-hmm. is a massive responsibility for all of these companies. And uh, 
for us as you know, people who are in positions to be on a panel like this, we should be bringing that back to all of our companies. It's really important. So I think we've got time for one more question up here before we open it up to the floor. Uh, not to uh, get too big, but what, what are some of the biggest challenges that you foresee in the music tech industry in, we'll say, the next five years, specifically when it comes to creativity? There are so many potential outcomes that could change the course of how tech is made. Uh, tools could predict artist intent, become actual collaborators, adapt to people's music making styles. What is the trend that you think is going to happen? Uh, what do you think is going to be the biggest challenge? Uh, for me, it's respect for the art. I, I think that it's, it is with the how the proliferation of, especially this like AI wave, and, and uh, to, to Dan's point like earlier, like trying to make noise, trying to almost get in trouble to get eyeballs and these kinds of things, like to, to lose respect for what music is, what it's been, what it means to people, that emotional connection, like that to me is like where the, the focus needs to be. It's because you need to be, as a company, as an organization, you have to be rooted in that. You have to be rooted in, I, I mean, I, it almost sounds like, a little too pie in the sky, but you gotta have the. You really have to have respect and the right intentions for artists at the core of what you're doing, and then you can then you can start to make decisions. That that for me is the the basis for all of it. Yeah, just to piggyback on that, I think authenticity is probably one of the biggest challenges. Just to put a word on it, like, and um, yeah, there's a lot of gr great opportunity and awesome things that are going to come with a lot of the tools that we're all building and trying to shepherd forward. But there's a lot of you know challenges with that as well. So I think. You know, one of the ch challenges, just like a, a practical example, is a lot of the the larger kind of glacial companies in the music industry, how they are going to adapt to a lot of this new technology when they have, you know, tools that have been, you know, used by a lot of us for 20 or 30 years to make music. And then you see a rise of a lot of these, let's just say, AI native tools. Just to look at DAWs or plugins, just to be specific. Um, and they're much more agile, right? And they're built upon new technology versus a lot of other companies that are trying to figure out how they tack it on or what have you. So I think we're going to see... And we're seeing even at Music Tectonics, right? There's companies here that are doing that. This rise of this new creator tool platform, BandLab, Blander, you know, Splice, a lot of these kind of fall into that category. Um, and, and how that kind of upsets the balance of the, the music technology industry, I think it's going to be fascinating. I agree with what both of you said. And I think you're hinting at this too, but I think the music tech can move very fast, right? Our companies are like moving very quickly. The rest of the industry... <laughs> is not, you said glacial. I don't know if that's what you were like hinting at, but yes, you know, like what about like, like, I don't know who is in this audience, so I'll be PC, but like, I don't know if other parts of the industry are moving as fast. And so what we're finding is like, maybe like the rights, you know, uh, when you talk about like sampling and putting things online and sharing things quickly, like there's a lot of coordination that needs to happen between different pieces of the industry to make that like a seamless experience for a, a musician. And I'm going to open the floor up if anyone has any questions. Okay, right here in the front. Hi everyone, uh, my name is Matt. I work for Save the Music Foundation and we have a music technology grant that goes to schools all across the country. And so one of the things that has been in my head is how do we 
stay away from or approach AI in that? And Denny, you made me think of my question, which is, what thoughts does everyone have about how AI should and should not interact with the educational experience of music production? How can it enhance it, and how should it be removed from it, if any, if at all? Um, I can speak to a, a small a small piece of that. Um, we've started a partnership with uh, Berkeley Online to allow the teachers to use uh, stem separation to isolate instruments and slow down. So examples of bringing in guest artists, right, and isolating the bass track from an earth, wind, and fire track and learning it in real time, right, slowing things down, changing the pitch, changing. We've seen sort of those types of tools um, be really embraced by that community. Um, and but again, it's more for traditional learning. It's more for like, how do I use this as a tool to help my students? And um, that has been wildly successful. And we see that sort of gaining some momentum as a, as a teaching tool. But that, not in the production side, just more in the, in the practice and educational side of it. Yeah, I've been, I've been a college professor teaching music production now full time for 20, almost 20 years, right? So AI and being part of Lander now for almost a decade, like it's always been a thing about where we kind of insert that in the process. As a, in this example, yesterday we were at 1500 Sound Academy in Inglewood, right? And Lander, we put out this new plugin this past week. It's an AI mastering plugin where it masters for you and then you can make some tweaks and decisions and things like that. And they actually proposed to us to incorporate it in their program because their kids don't know what mastering is, right? And But the ability to have something that gets them whatever, a master that they can then reverse engineer and see what did it actually do. And they can try to hit that target themselves and maybe even go beyond what we're capable of, which is amazing on all fronts. And I thought that was a really cool use case of that. And a lot of our users have been using that in our cloud tool for a while. But now that it's in the DAW, it's a little more hands-on for, for kids that are in school. I don't have a, an exact answer or like line in the sand about where it should or shouldn't be. But I think maybe a good rule of thumb for now is to just be transparent about where it is and isn't, and then the, you know, the kiddos will figure it out. They'll develop their own opinion. Yeah. And there, you know, it will be built into every creator tool in the next few years. Every single DAW manufacturer is is actively looking at acquisitions and or figuring out you know open source stuff and how to put that in. And some already have. So it's it's not even. It, it, the term AI won't even be something we're talking about in a few years, right? It'll just be software that's in other software, right? It'll be smarter software that kind of, again, meets you where you are and helps you get to where you want to go. We won't see it as this big thing to be concerned about. Yeah, and I'm sure you're aware BandLab has BandLab for Education, right? And one of our more popular AI tools is SongStarter. Uh, you can input a few lines of text and it'll generate a few MIDI options for you. Uh, and then you can open it directly in studio. And we joke that there's a reason why we call it song starter and not song finisher because of all of the boundaries that we've put around it. So it will only give you a few bars of MIDI. It only gives you a few tracks, I think four, maybe four or five. But it's, it's nice for people to have a starting point, especially when a DAW interface is really intimidating. Music production when you're starting is very intimidating. Um, and so from a student perspective, we find that it's actually incredibly helpful. And uh, when people start a project through SongStarter versus going into studio versus any other entry point, they're actually 80% more likely to publish a song on their feed. Yeah, so we find that it is very helpful in the creative process. Yeah, and I love that, by the way. You know, a lot of times when we talk about people mention, I'm not saying you specifically, but AI tools or whatever, we, a lot of times we go to like something where they can type in something and they get a song, right? And just to be clear, no one gives a shit about typing something in and getting a song, right? There's no creator, no... 
that's a it's a novelty. It's a once off thing. It's not something anybody needs to be scared of. It is going to be disruptive to certain areas of our industry, sync and and production, music libraries, samples is going to be impacted by it, of course. But like for people actually making music, that's not what what they want. So I think the way it's integrated into a lot of the technology. Um, will also not be a threatening thing that we have to worry that it's going to remove some agency from students as they're kind of learning the process. Do we have any other questions? Um, Thank you. Um, <clears throat> my question is, um, I think it's really easy for me to understand why like more creator tools is gonna to make more creators, it's more accessible to be a music creator. Um, and there's some obvious results of that. But uh, you guys also talked about how that's very related to this maybe new expectation for fans to be like a collaborator. And maybe that, that word is up for interpretation. I'm curious if there are some really obvious ways that come to mind first of like, what are those expectations? Is it through, how do they, how do they want to collaborate? What does that look like? I, I, if I understand your question correctly, I think like the TikTok remix feature yeah. is like the top one that comes to mind. It's like the, the expectation is that you're then amplifying the artist that you are remixing by sharing it and working within it. I agree. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think even, even when we don't look at platforms that have created tools specifically for this, we've seen fans take the agency into their own hands. And putting sped up or slowed down songs on TikTok is probably the most obvious example of that. Um, I've had friends that have gotten album deals because of sped up songs on TikTok. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny how that feeds back into the industry. So a lot of what I work I do is, is mastering, right? So a lot of sound, John Wick and all these soundtracks and a lot of uh, hip-hop stuff as well for Atlantic and Def Jam. And you, it's interesting to see how what fans have done, exactly what Danny just said, even just take a sped up and slow down example, or they add a little reverb and speed it up or what have you with the limited tools they have. And now labels, when I get get a you know a mix to master they're also sending me the sped up and the slow down version because the label is releasing those to try to get out ahead of the fans doing it but they're in response to what the fans have been doing um with the content right and i think we're going to continue to see that kind of feeding back into itself sort of a thing where labels are responding to what fans are, are doing and trying to figure out better ways to monetize that for better or worse get out ahead of it and, and, and respond to it yeah a lot of artists have also been putting ideas out on social platforms just the spark of an idea, start of lyrics, what do you think of this, give me your feedback, and they might continue with that song, take feedback from a user and use it to complete the, the lyrics, or it might not have a spark, and so they shelve it and they go on to the next one, but there's definitely more of a participatory process. Um, I think Charlie Puth did this on TikTok with one of his songs. Um, yeah, so there's this, there's this interplay that we really haven't seen before because the tools haven't allowed it. It's created, where there was separation, we now see fluidity. And I think a lot of fans are rising to the occasion and asking for different experiences because of that. Um, I come from a background more like FinTech and I know uh, interoperability between platforms has been a huge reason why like the banking sector and FinTech has exploded in the past decade. So that like everyone was doing things similar ways so that you could go from one platform to the next. And so as you think about creativity and music tech, how's important that I can, you know, take a sample from Splice, go to Lander, then, you know, go to Moise and BandLab. Like, how are you, how's the industry thinking about making sure that you're not locking people into platforms? 
Yeah, well, we've started even in the past month or two. We've we've seen some. You know, one of the big issues, just to get granular on the creation side, like we all, most professionals are using DAWs, right? So we're creating in some form of a DAW, if it's an online DAW or if it's a mobile, but oftentimes desktop, right? And they're not, there's no interoperability between those DAWs, right? For the most part, intentionally. And you're starting to see some of that potentially go away where we're seeing Personas and some other companies develop what could become a universal file format that allows people to kind of migrate between platforms. And I think, I think that is interesting because what... Ultimately, what that does is it breeds more collaboration and more community around creation, and people aren't so siloed based upon the tools they use, and then we remove some of that friction. So I'm hoping that that continues to see some some adoption. Seconded. Yeah, I'm sorry. You know, the other sort of other piece of that I I think is sort of like how you approach. Yeah, I, I use the the voice synthesis model, right? The idea of like, okay, because licensing, right, between platforms is very unique, very bespoke, very different, right? So how content moves between them is subject to all of that connectivity too, right? So as we think about these tools and, and today's like as you, all right, if you create it and you have the rights for it and it can go everywhere, right? And it's not, sub, then all of a sudden you're cleared for it to start to move around, right? It, and especially as AR tools are introduced, like if there become roadblocks because a piece of technology is stopped or isn't licensed, then the wall hits, right? So if we go keep going backwards and we say, okay, at creation, at source, now we've cleared everything. We've taken the time. You can use this. You can commercialize it. Now the distributors are allowed to pass it through. It goes through under those licenses. It makes its way through. So I think getting it in early and being thoughtful about what happens at, at conception is really important. And that puts us exactly at time, and it's also a really lovely note to end on. So thank you, everyone, for being here. Please give it up for our panelists. Thanks for listening to Music Tectonics. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. We have new episodes for you every week. Did you know we do free monthly online events that you, our lovely podcast listeners, can join? Find out more at musictectonics.com. And while you're there, look for the latest about our annual conference and sign up for our newsletter to get updates. Everything we do explores the seismic shifts that shake up music and technology, the way the Earth's tectonic plates cause quakes and make mountains. Connect with Music Tectonics on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. That's my favorite platform. Connect with me, Dimitri Vitsa, if you can spell it. We'll be back again next week, if not sooner. You're listening to Music Tectonics.